Before I begin my message this morning, I did want to uh, just uh, update you on a few things uh, just logistically. Um, first of all, uh, Avon and I won't be here next week. If you got the weekly word, you know about that. There's a, a seminar in California, the church we always go to, that uh, just, uh, just focus on church planting, outreach-oriented, evangelistically, and just wanting to just think through some of those things more about how we as a church can reach out more as a it's a body, so we'll be gone and be with her parents. The kids are, are divvied up. Uh, that'll be, hey, will be, that'll, that'll be a good thing. Um, also, uh, uh, just next week, a man named Jess Miller is going to preach. Um, he's recently ordained an elder at uh, Morningstar Baptist Church. I'm just very impressed with him as I mix with him. I've heard good things uh, about him. I, I'm sure you'll, you'll greet him well. He's a younger man, but knows the Scripture and loves Christ so you'll, you'll enjoy that. Um, also, we have two of our daughters gone this morning. I just thought I'd tell you this story. You might, might enjoy it. Uh, they're in Arizona with Grandma and Grandpa. And I've always told this to people that what a, what a great privilege it is to have grandparents who have a, a vision to disciple our children. And uh, that's where they are. They're having a, a good time as they are, are there. Um, and, and they went Wednesday from... From Rockford, they flew out, and then Thursday and Friday, they're going to be there. One's going to fly back um, Monday. Chris is. Hannah's going to stay driving back with them from Arizona. Uh, going to have a good time, I'm sure. But it, I'm not sure if you remember, but Thursday and Friday, how was the weather on Thursday and Friday here? It was just gorgeous. And uh, we booked these tickets several months ago, a month and a half ago or so, and we pulled up the weather in Phoenix, and it was 60s and rainy in Phoenix on Thursday and Friday. And so, um, on Monday, Chris has taken a, um, a class at Rock Valley Music Appreciation and she had to write some blues. And so she didn't know what to write. But here she wrote, and I, catch, I trust you'll catch the spirit of this. It's kind of pretty funny. She said, going on vacation to get someplace warm. Going on vacation to get someplace warm. Come to find out it's going to storm. And uh, that's what they experienced. The weather, though, I think was a little bit better. Um, but they're having a good time. You can think about them. Well, this morning, though, is Easter morning. And it is the Sunday that we set apart as a church historically all across Christendom is celebrating this morning as the, the day when we remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Our songs have been uh, geared around those things. Our, our scripture reading has our thoughts. Even we start our service, Christ is risen risen indeed, just focusing upon the fact that Christ has risen. This morning is also called Resurrection Sunday. It's a great name for this Sunday. Today, when we remember our Lord Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, loved by few and hated by many, betrayed by a friend, delivered to the Romans, crucified upon a cross for our sins, dead and buried, and yet God in His infinite power and mercy and grace raised Him up from the dead, and that fact is the heartbeat of our faith. That Jesus Christ, who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, was dead as dead could be, but was raised to life. And apart from the resurrection from the dead, if that didn't happen, we've all believed in vain. We might as well just go home. We might as well be playing golf today, if that didn't happen. Of all men, Paul says, we are most to be pitied if the resurrection is not true. Oh, but with the resurrection, and it is true, we have hope of our sins forgiven. And we don't need to fear death because Jesus 
has conquered death for us in the cross of Christ. We can look death right in the face and say, Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sin? In Jesus Christ is the victory. As He rose again, so too will we who believe in Christ rise again. And this is the hope of the Christian faith. And this is our hope. And in a very real way, our hearts this morning ought to set our minds on the resurrection, but the resurrection ought to be more than just merely Sunday morning, Easter morning. Thoughts on the resurrection ought to consume mornings. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said this, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised, for the sin, raised on, the th- on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and then twelve and to more than five hundred even at one time. The death, burial, resurrection, appearance of Christ are matters of first importance. It's upon these realities that many of us in this room have really placed our lives in the resurrection of Christ. And so this morning, I want to focus our attention on the resurrection. We're going to deviate from our exposition of Hebrews. We're in chapter 7, midway through. But we'll pick that up not next week, but the week after that, in chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 7. But this week, I want to take us into the book of Revelation. So I invite you to take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Revelation. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. It's the last book in your Bible. I'm sure you can, you can find it there, right there in the end. Now, as you're turning there, I want you to think about the book of Revelation. We, we have various thoughts about the book. As a preacher, one, I'm terrified of the book, as it is difficult to understand. Um, but when we think about Revelation, we think about things in the future, future, and rightly so. What's going to take place? In fact, John was told by the Lord Jesus to write the things which you've seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these after these things. It's a book of prophecy. It's a it's a book of things in the future. We think of the book of Revelation. We think about mystery. There's just a lot in Revelation that is that is just shrouded in. In mystery, I guess maybe the best word to say. When you think about heaven and, and, and the myriads of angels and thousands of thousands, this throne which is just brilliant and flashing, and then you have the Lamb, and, and it's just difficult to, to fully comprehend. And when you think about the new heaven and the new earth, it's breathtaking. City, New Jerusalem, 15 miles in width, 1,500 miles in length, and 1,500 miles in height, a three dimensional city with golden streets and pearly gates, with no tears and no mourning and no death and no crying and no pain. We, we don't even have categories. I mean, pain inflicts us every day. There is mourning here. There is sorrow. We think of the book of Revelation, we think of difficulty. I mean, how many difficult interpreta- interpretive questions are there? I mean, I, I just wrote down a few. I mean, Revelation 6, verse 12. How exactly is it the stars fall from the sky? Or the 144,000 people who are sealed, who exactly are they? How can a pit be bottomless? Who are the two witnesses? Who's the false prophet? And who exactly is the beast? Who's Babylon? What, what exactly, exactly is the millennium? All these interpretive kind of questions. And that's what scares me as a preacher of thinking about that book. So I like, well, someday. Not this week totally, but we'll kind of get past those things. Revelation, I also think about symbolism. There are stars which indicate angels of churches. There are lampstands which represent churches. There are seals and trumpets and bowls which 
which symbolize the outpouring of God's wrath upon the world. There are beasts and dragons and false prophets to indicate all the work of Satan. And, and this book reads like a, a science fiction novel. I mean, you read it and it's got all these animals and all this stuff going on. But that is the nature of apocalyptic literature. That, that's how it is. We think of the book of Revelation, we think of judgment. And rightly so. Much of Revelation is devoted to judgment. Six seals which are opened up bring famine and war and death and terror to the world. The trumpets are blown which bring more wrath and judgment. The bowls are poured out which bring more wrath and judgment. And the wrath and judgment finally comes to a close in chapter 19 and 20 when Satan, the false prophet, the beast, and all who fail to believe are thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. It's appropriate for us to think of Revelation in these terms. Whether it's future things or mystery or difficulty or symbolism or judgment, that's all proper. But have you ever thought about the resurrection in Revelation? It's, for me, it's not, it's not really a category that goes in the resurrection. And until a few months ago, I never put these two things together. But I've been working on the book of Revelation, just stirring it across my mind, just meditating on it, thinking about it. Um, I said, wow, the resurrection is all over the book of Revelation. And that's what I want to do this morning. I just want to show you the resurrection in Revelation. And I think you might be amazed. Let's start in Revelation 1.1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His bondservants the things which must soon take place. This verse sets the stage for the entire book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is all about revealing Jesus Christ. In fact, the word translated here, revelation, is the Greek word apocalypsis, from which we get the word, help me, apocalypse. Right? Literally, it means to uncover. Apo, to take from. Kalupsis, kalupto, to hide. So it's, it's an unveiling. It's a, it's a revealing. It's that which was hidden. It's kind of taking it away so that we can see what, was, what has taken place. And so you ask, what's being revealed in the Revelation? The answer is pretty easy. It's answered for us right there in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is being revealed in this book. It's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. From the first verse even to the last. Even Turn over there. Keep your finger in verse 1. But right there at the very end, He who testifies to these things, is John, or Jesus, says, Yes, I am coming quickly. And then John adds, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Then the blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. And from beginning to end, the book of Revelation is all about Jesus Christ. And so you say, what exactly is being revealed about Jesus? The revelation of Jesus. What's being revealed? Everything. Everything is being revealed. For the first time, really, in all of eternity, the world will finally see Jesus for who He is. Think about the Old Testament. The prophets, they prophesied about Jesus. And, and they told about Jesus. And we knew some things. That He would be born in Bethlehem. And we knew that He would be from the line of David. And we knew that He would be a, a king. And we knew that He would suffer. We knew that He would bring in the Messianic kingdom. But even the prophets themselves, it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, that they made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating 
as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They, they were trying to figure this out. And they, they couldn't quite figure it out. So those in the Old Testament time, they didn't know Jesus fully. And when Jesus walked on the earth, though He mixed and mingled with lots of people, they didn't really know Jesus fully. There are many who didn't believe in Him. Remember when Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together as the hen gathers her chicks. But they, weren't, they were unwilling because they didn't believe Him. They didn't know who He really was. And even His disciples were but dismayed, confused about the nature of the kingdom that He was establishing. So even those who knew Him on earth didn't fully understand Jesus. And now, even after His death, burial, and resurrection, there are many people today who don't believe, who don't understand Jesus. All you need to look around our society. Our society is living rebellion against Jesus. Because our society doesn't believe in Him. Doesn't believe who He is. He's not been fully revealed to the society and even us the church, who believe in Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, we see in a mirror dimly. We have a faith and we have a hope, but it's not yet realized. That's why it's a hope. It's it's something that's dim that that we kind of see. But there will be a day when the events of Revelation transpire where we see Jesus for really what He is. And when we see Him, we're going to see Him alive and well, We're going to see Jesus in His resurrected state. We're going to see Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. Chapter 19 puts it forth. This is who Jesus is. I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, and He who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness He judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems. And He has a name written on Him which no one knows except Himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. From His mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it He may strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron, and He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is who Jesus is. He's the sovereign, ruling Lord. But this morning, I want to note to you that this very fact that Jesus is the sovereign Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords, is a clear indication that He is alive and well, is it not? I mean, this whole backdrop of revelation that that shows Jesus alive and active and well assumes and indicates His resurrection. Right? Death couldn't contain Him. That stone which was rolled in front of the tomb had to be cast away. He couldn't remain dead. Think about this. Without the resurrection, revelation has zero meaning. Because for revelation to have any meaning at all, you've got to have a Christ who has been raised from the dead. Who's the the main actor here in Revelation? He's the main character here in Revelation. I, I remember a man who I used to work with was all interested in Revelation and trying to figure it out. But he was a rank unbeliever, but he was just trying to figure out just kind of what events are going to take place. was very interested in, in prophecy and things like that. And, and as I thought about him this week, I thought about, you know, but if he doesn't believe the resurrection, then he's missed like the main point of the whole book is that Jesus is back and He is alive and well. It's the resurrection that gives foundation to His return. And this way the resurrection is really implied throughout all the book of Revelation, which starts for us here in chapter 1, verse 1. But more than merely being implied, the resurrection of Jesus is explicitly mentioned in several passages, particularly in the first three chapters. 
we're going to focus our attention on. It kind of sets the stage for everything else. So let's, let's look here. Chapter 1, verse 4. Here's John writing. He says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Here we see the, the opening greeting. It's a Trinitarian greeting. The Father who is and who was and who is to come. The Spirit, the seven spirits before the throne. How, interpretively, that's difficult. I'm not sure how to figure all that out. But I think it speaks of His permeating influence, the seven spirits just throughout the whole earth that, that goes out. And then we see Jesus. And look at the ways in which Jesus is described. He is described, first of all, as the faithful witness. That is the one who gave faithful testimony to the Lord as He was walking upon the earth. And then He was described here with the resurrection, the firstborn of the dead. We'll get that phrase in just a bit. But the ruler of the kings of the earth, that really sets up all of Revelation. He's the one that rules and reigns. This is who Jesus really is. And so you say, okay, let's go back to the firstborn of the dead. You've got to realize that is a reference to His resurrection. Not only did Jesus live a life of faithful witness, He also was the firstborn from the dead, and He now is the ruler of the kings of the earth. It doesn't mean, by the way, and this is important, the firstborn of the dead doesn't mean He's the very first person ever to arise from the dead, because there are others who have risen from the dead. Elisha raised a little boy from the dead. Jesus Himself raised a little child from the dead. Lazarus was raised from the dead. As Darren Wiebe mentioned even this morning, that difficult passage in Matthew chapter 27, when after Jesus died, the tombs were opened and the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they were raised before Jesus was raised. So, firstborn from the dead doesn't mean that He is the first thing that, that ever raised from the dead. Firstborn, though, Understand it means that the, the preeminent one, the sovereign one, the, the one who is most important. First in status, not first in time. Like for instance, listen to Psalm 89 verse 27. When David's prophesying of the Messiah to come, we read of the Messiah, I also shall make Him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. There you see firstborn. means He's the highest of the kings. He's the sovereign one. That's what firstborn means. And don't let any Jehovah Witness come to your door and say, oh, Jesus was the firstborn because He was the first thing created. No, that's not what firstborn means. Firstborn means the sovereign one. Now, as a firstborn myself, I like to think that I'm the, the sovereign one in our family. But the firstborn is the, the one who is this, the preeminent one. When Paul used the phrase, listen to this, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. See, the resurrection of Christ lifted Him up to first place overall. Right now, you know what? We don't see it. We don't see it. But there will be a day when He's fully revealed and we see it all. It will be in the day when the events take place of revelation. Today's a day of waiting for that day. And I just say, let's be prepared for that day. Well, continuing Revelation, we see another reference to His resurrection in verse 7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. 
and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him, so it is to be. Amen. Here again is the premise of the entire book. Jesus is coming back in all His glory to establish His kingdom and all the tribes of the earth will know what's happening. There's no one on earth who's going to say, oh, Jesus came? <laughs> no, Jesus has come with the clouds and every eye will see Him. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Just as a lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. The sign of the sun will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn as they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Putting these things together. Jesus coming on the clouds and there is mourning and there is weeping. Every eye will see Him and so you say, why, why are these things together? Jesus put them together. They're together here. Well, it's a conglomeration of several Old Testament passages. The first is from Daniel 7, verse 13, which uh, pictures Jesus coming with the clouds, presenting Himself to the Ancient of Days when He receives an everlasting dominion which consists of all peoples and nations and men of every language who serve Him. The second quotation weaved in here comes from Zechariah 12 which speaks about how those look upon Him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over Him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. And so you ask the question, why are they mourning? Why when Jesus comes back and He displays Himself in all the clouds, why, why are people crying? They're crying because their plan failed. They know the gig is up. They know that judgment is coming. They tried to do away with the Christ by piercing Him, giving Him a death wound. And yet that wound apparently is now healed because Jesus is alive and well, coming on the, crowd, on the clouds. Yes, Jesus died. He was pierced on the cross. And that soldier pierced into His stomach so as to fulfill prophecy. He has been resurrected from the, from the dead, alive and well. And here we see Him rendering judgment on those who rebelled against Him. That's why they're mourning. Even those who pierced Him are mourning because they realize He's coming to judge. Do you see the resurrection? Is it there? I hope so. Well, let's continue on. Chapter 1, beginning of verse 10. John writes this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. This big voice was like, whoa, what's happening? Now listen closely to how John describes Jesus. He says this, in verse 13, he says, And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, he said. So these seven lampstands, which we find in verse 20, represent the churches. And they say he saw one standing in the middle of him like a son of man. And he was clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, from his, from his neck to his feet. He was girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. So you just picture his head just, just, just shining, just white, all his head. And his eyes like a flame of fire. I mean, just look at his head and it's just a brightness. His feet, down when he looked there, was sticking out from beyond his uh, robe, was like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. I mean, you've seen metal heated up, how just his feet are like glowing. And his voice, 
was like the sound of many waters. As Jesus spoke, He just spoke loudly and with authoritative nature, just booming in His voice. He said in His right hand, He held seven stars, which we find later in chapter 1, verse 20, are the, the angels to the churches. He held the seven stars in His right hand. Out of His mouth, it says, came a sharp two-edged sword, we find later that it's the Word of God. Just What Jesus speaks is not just loud, but it comes powerful and it, and it pierces. And then it says his, his face was like the sun shining in all of its strength. That kind of sounds science fiction, but that's Jesus. Does that describe a dead man? Describe someone who is very alive and very well and very scary. And John said that he was afraid of him. It says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And then Jesus placed his hand on him and said, do not be afraid. I am what? The first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and have come to life. And I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. I hope you see the resurrection of Christ here. It's as clear as any text we've gone to. He says, yes, I was dead, but now I am alive. I am the living one. He affirms his death, but now he affirms his life. And his life is a life that's forevermore, is what he says in verse 18. In other words, Jesus will no longer die. They put him to death once, yes. That was his sacrifice for sins, but now he lives. And God will never send him again to die for us. See, the resurrection of Christ wasn't merely for a moment. It wasn't merely for the 40 days when He was here on earth teaching His apostles. No, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a forever resurrection. And then comes the good news. This is the thing that was supposed to comfort John. He says, I have the keys of death and Hades. Do you have any keys in your pocket? I know I, know I got some. Keys, what, what do they symbolize? I mean, there's mystery here, but what, what are keys symbolize? What are they? What can you do with keys? What can you do? Nathan, what can you do? Unlock things. What else? They open things. Kind of shows I've got power here. I've got the keys. I can, I can open. As I, I look at my keys here, I've got, I got two car keys. I've got those there. I was, I was looking at this this morning. I've got a, a house key. I've got... House of my parent, key to my parents' house. I've got a key to my old house, like nine years ago. <laughs> I think I need to do something with that. And I don't even know what this one is. But Jesus pulls it out and he says, Listen, I've got the keys of death and of Hades. And what that means, he got the power to unlock death and Hades because he rose from the dead. The doors now were somewhere, were, the doors at one point were locked. Nobody get out. And then the guy came along with the key and Jesus did. He opens up death and Hades and they are forever opened. And those who die will live again as Jesus has let them out. Now admittedly, at this point, we need to, we need to think soberly. There are those who will only rise from the dead to die again. It's called the second death. There are others who will rise again to live with Jesus, those whose names are written in the book of life. But listen, hear the sobering truth of the final judgment when John saw in chapter 20. 
Another vision he said in chapter 20, we said, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. And so terrible was it that from his presence earth and heaven fled away and there was no place found for them. He said, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. He said, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the book. He says, death and Hades. He said, the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every single one of them, from the deeds according to what was written in the books. We said. And they said, Death and Hades then were thrown into the lake of fire. And he comments, This is the second death, the lake of fire. And he says, If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he also is thrown into the lake of fire. This is the judgment aspect of the book of Revelation that we need to even look at. These are terrifying words to be sure. And I just say this if you're judged according to your deeds, you're sunk. Because all of us have sinned. We are sunk. The only way you're going to be saved is if when God opens up, He finds your name in the book of life. Because it says in Revelation 20, verse 15, anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. So you say, how do I get my name in the book of life? How do I find out? How do I know if my name's there? And I just say this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It's the only way. If you're going to trust in your deeds, just say, have at it. It's not going to work. The only way is by grace through faith says this one has trusted in me this one has trusted in me this one has trusted in me and it's only going to be your union with Christ that's going to get you past the great white throne judgment when Jesus our advocate surrounds us and says Father don't condemn them because you condemned me on the cross it's the only thing and that's the hope of Easter morning for us is that in the resurrection of Christ we too will take part and we'll be with him in heaven. Paul wrote this Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, that is Adam, by one man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, that is, all who believe in Christ. The sufficiency of his atoning work on their behalf. To this morning, you believe in Jesus, you can join in the resurrection. Resurrection hope we have. You don't need to fear the grave. And maybe it be helpful to you if you fear the grave and you fear the judgment. Maybe just even as Jesus placed his hand on John and said, Do not fear. Maybe just even picture Christ placing your hand. Don't fear. I was dead and I'm alive now forevermore. And I've gone to prepare a place for you. And and I will come again to take you to myself. And where I am, there you will be be with me also. Just believe in him. It's the good news of the gospel. This is the glory. He's got death and Hades in his hands. I tell you, there is practical application for the resurrection. That Jesus conquered the grave, and by faith we can conquer the grave as well. Just believe and trust in him. Well, there's more resurrection here in the book of Revelation. Maybe you can see it there in chapters 2 and 3. If you have a red letter Bible like mine, you see the words of Jesus in red. Um, I don't know where this got started. Some people, maybe superstitious back long ago, thought, mm, yeah, the words of Jesus are really special. Let's put them in red. Whatever. It kind of helps sometimes. But kids, maybe you can help me out. How much of chapter 2 and 3 is, is what Jesus is saying? If you look in your Bibles. You guys have Bibles there? How much? 
Yeah, Nathan? I knew you'd get the answer because you got from your mom. All of it. Chapters 2 and 3 are the words of Jesus Himself. Now let me tell you, dead men don't speak. It screams of the revelation there, of the resurrection there. These pages here in chapter 2 and 3 are written to seven different churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Each book had their own benefits or qualities which were exceptionally good. Most of them had some bad qualities. We read about them. Two were really good. Smyrna and Philadelphia were like model churches. It's interesting, the model churches. Smyrna would soon face some incredible persecution. And um, Philadelphia was like a model church, but it says even though you are, uh, don't have very much power, but you've been faithful, kept my word, not denied my name. These weren't big churches. These were just faithful churches. There was one church like Ephesus that was doctrinally really strong, tested the, those who called themselves apostles, found them to be false, but they were weak in love. They'd forgotten the things they'd done early on. Laodicea was lukewarm. Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Pergamum and Thyatira tolerated false teaching. Sardis was a dead church. They had a name that they were alive. Maybe they had activity they were alive, but he said, you're dead. Wake up, therefore, and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, is what God tells them. I'd love to look at each of these churches. Someday we will. They have great lessons for us, just to look and say, what kind of church are we? What kind of person am I? Am I, am I one that would help Pergamum or Ephesus? Or, or where would I be? That'll wait for another time. But there is one of these letters that help us to see the revelation, the resurrection. It's the Smyrna, verse 8. is where it starts. To the angel of the church at Smyrna, write, the first and the last who is dead and has come to life says this. Now, each of the seven letters had some kind of description of Jesus. To Ephesus, it says the, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven lampstands says this. And to Pergamum in chapter what, 2, verse 12, it speaks about the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. And to Thyatira in verse 18, it speaks about the, um, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this. And here in, in Smyrna, he says this, I, I'm the one who has... The sh- who has I'm sorry, I'm the first and the last. It was dead and come to life. There's the resurrection, right? Do you see it? He was dead and He has come to life. Now, my question for you is this. Why did He tell this to this church? Why did He tell the church at Smyrna that He dead and He'd come to life? I think the answer is pretty obvious because they were a church facing death. They were about to suffer. Look what Jesus says here in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. (laughs) Just trying to encourage them. You're going through tribulation, right? You're, You're dirt poor, but he says you're rich because you're rich in faith. And I know the blasphemy by those who say that they are Jews or not, but are a synagogue of Satan, probably where most of this tribulation was coming from. He says this, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Suffering's coming. You have tribulation, you have poverty now, but it's coming worse. Don't fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison with the purpose that you will be tested. You will have tribulation. 
for ten days. I think probably best to say you will be tortured for ten days. But be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. In other words, Jesus says this. You got ten days. You got ten days. Just stay faithful for ten days. And through those ten days, they're going to kill you. And after ten days then, I'll give you the crown of life. Now who can give the crown of life but he who has the gift of life? You can only give what you have. And as Jesus conquered the grave, and as He was the one who was dead has come to life, He can give the crown of life. And the promise is here in verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, particularly he who endures, remains faithful those ten days, will not be hurt by the second death. And there we see the second death coming up again. Is that for those who believe and are faithful and remain faithful to the Lord, this second death, which is awful, being thrown in a lake of fire and brimstone, it is promised life for us apart from that. I say this, are you going through rough times? Being persecuted for your faith? Are you being tortured for your faith? Probably not. But Jesus is the life giver and He can help. And the message just enduring to the end. One of the things I, I've really been struck as I've been going through Revelation also is this whole overcomer, right? As it says at the bottom of verse 11, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. It says that in verse 7. He who overcomes, it says it in verse 17. To him who overcomes, there's always this picture of the one who overcomes. And the picture there's the one who endures by faith through the trials and tribulations of life. And the promise at the end of the tunnel, Jesus says, there's life because I was dead. I've come to life. I'm ready to give it to you. There's implication of the resurrection for stuff. It's practical. Practical for us. Alright, one last place where the resurrection is clearly laid out and then we will close. Revelation chapter 5. In chapter 4, we transition to heaven. As John saw this door standing open in heaven, this voice said, come up here, I'll show you the things which must take place soon. And he was immediately was in the Spirit and he saw these things in heaven. He saw God being worshipped there. And then in chapter 5, he kind of looks then to... To the side of the throne, which is where the Lamb is, he said, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Catch the drama here. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the brook or to look into it. You've got to feel the tension. Here's a book, seven seals. It's probably the title deed to the earth. It's got to be opened and no one's found to open it. Nobody in heaven. And as he's looking, he's seeing these angelic beings, all these elders and all these people and no one there. Looks upon the earth, there's no one there. They look under the earth, like I'm not sure where exactly under the earth is or who's under the earth. They're looking under, no one there. God's plan seems to be stopped because no one can open this thing. And John says in verse 4, he began to weep greatly because no one was found to open the book or to look into it. God's got this scroll that's got to be opened in his hand and no one can open it. It's like the plan of God is being suspended. And then, and then there comes one who can open the book. And the elder knew about it. He said in verse 5, one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. 
Behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. Who's that? Jesus. The root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw standing between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders. So you have the throne, you have the elders on that. Stand between them. He saw a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. There you go. See the seven spirits of God again permeating, as we saw in chapter 1. And he came, that is the lamb, the standing slain lamb came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Okay, we've got to stop here. Okay, think about what John is seeing. He's looking at a lamb. Obviously, it's a reference to the Lord Jesus. And this lamb has some distinguishing characteristics. He is standing as if slain. That doesn't make sense. If you're slain, you're dead. And if you're dead, you're not standing and you're not alive. And yet this lamb was standing as if slain. And how he knew that he was slain, I don't know. But somehow he saw a lamb, maybe a slit throat. That's how they killed the lambs, right? Just grab them right here, take the knife, and just slit the throat. Let all the blood pour out, and you get dead and lame. So somehow, maybe blood all over his white wool. It's reddened his nice white coat. I don't know. Whatever he saw is difficult. And, and I'm not sure we're supposed to understand it fully literally, but we're supposed to understand the illusion, which is clear as a... If I was Southern, I'd come up with some kind of illustration. God help me, Garth. The clearest, I don't know, a June bug on a hornet or something. I don't know. But it's as clear as can be there, right? A dead animal come to life and stand. And somehow this lamb was able to, to go to the throne and with his leg take the scroll that no one could take out of God the Father's hands and begin to open the, the seals. shows that he's alive and well. Though he'd been dead, he was the one being in the universe able to take the book from the hand of the Lord and open up its seals. So I was preparing this message. It was at this point that I shuddered a little bit to think about the, the character of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus wasn't raised into a place of weakness. When Jesus raised to the dead, He was raised to a position of power and authority. Andy read forth from Philippians chapter 2 that speaks about though He was um, God, He didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by becoming a man. That's how we saw Him. We didn't see this God thing before Him, but we saw Him as a man. And then He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the death. Even the most painful, humiliating death, even death on the cross, He went down lower than any Therefore, he went higher than any. Therefore, God has exalted him above every name in heaven and on earth, under the earth. Everything is going to bow to Jesus because he went lower than anything. He went higher than anything. And we saw him in his incarnation low, but he is now brought high. And that's why those in heaven began to worship the Lamb. Look at verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures, mentioned in chapter 4, this is science fiction stuff too, but reality. And the 24 elders who were there, they fell down before the Lamb. I mean, this is prostrating. This is on-the-ground worship. Falling down before the Lamb. They are worshiping this Lamb that was slain. Each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Try to figure that out. I'm not sure. And they sang a new song. 
A redemption song is what they're saying. They're saying, Worthy are you, Lamb, to take the book and to break its seals because, here's the reason, you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. You've got to look there that they're saying this Lamb is worthy. And why is He so worthy? Because He was slain. It's not because inherently of his power, it's inherently because of his weakness that he was slain, and in his being slain, he purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, and has made them to be, verse 10, a kingdom and priests, and they will reign. It was the death of the Messiah that brought salvation to us who believe that we might reign with him. There's the good news of the resurrection. The slain one's alive. He's alive to reap the fruit of His death. Isaiah prophesied of Jesus that the Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to death. If He would render Himself as a guilt offering, He will see His offspring. He will prolong His days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in His hand. It says in verse 11 of Isaiah 53, as a result of the anguish of the soul, He will see it and be satisfied. There's the resurrection that the One who God crushed is alive seeing these things and being satisfied. And Jesus is very satisfied there, receiving the worship of all the host of heaven. And the worship of the Lamb continues. Verse 11, And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Maybe some of you watched the uh, NCAA championship game, uh, not semifinals yesterday. Lots of people. The Lucas Oil, Lucas Oil something stadium. Loud crowds of people. This is even more. This is myriads of myriads, like millions of millions and thousands of thousands. This is a pretty big church service. And who are they worshiping? Look, it says in verse 12, saying all with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb that was slain receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. There it is again, worshiping the slain Lamb. And they explicitly mention this. They said, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And Jesus, the slain Lamb, could be distinguished from any other. He's the one that died for us. And the resurrection is what makes Him so glorious. And I want to close with this thought. We don't go any other place, but just to say this, that the the mention of the Lamb is mentioned many times in Revelation. It starts here in chapter 5, five times here in chapter 5, and it continues on 27 more times in the book of Revelation. Talking about Jesus being the Lamb. And every time it does, it's bringing up this imagery. The Lamb brings up the imagery from the Old Testament of the sacrifice. And this lamb, by the way, is alive and well. He's never seen us being dead. He's the one that breaks the seals. He's the one that's worshipped. He's the one that washes the saints white in His blood. He is the one shepherding the flock. He's the one waging war against the kings of the earth. He's, he's engaging in marriage with His bride, the church. He is this lamb, the very temple of God. He is in heaven with His bondservants. The Lamb of God. And so, every time you see that, 
I do believe that it ties back here. The Lamb that was slain, that's living. It is the resurrection in Revelation. And I simply say this. I, I, I quote John the Baptist. I quote it last week. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's worship the living Lamb. I say to you this Easter morning, Behold the living Lamb of God who was slain and has come to life and lives forevermore and is seated upon His throne. Let's worship Him. Let's pray. Lord, what I've tried to do here this morning pales with the reality of what we will see someday. I pray in Your grace You might grant us faith to see these things, to see them in increasing measure, to be more and more excited about our living Lord Jesus. Not just a slain martyr who died, was buried. David's tombs still around to today is what Peter said on the day of Pentecost, but Jesus Himself has been raised from the dead so different to be the Lamb that we will worship throughout eternity. I pray that You'd take us to the cross and see its power that throughout eternity in our worship we'll remember His crucifixion. We'll remember how He was slain for us. I pray, O Lord, that You'd help us place our faith and hope there. We pray this Easter day would be a day of celebration. Perhaps we get together with family. Give us boldness to speak about Jesus. Things we learn, things we're thinking about even today. That Christ is risen indeed, yes. And our sins are forgiven. And our redemption has been accomplished. And our redemption will be applied someday when we fully are redeemed and with the saints with no more mourning or crying or pain or death or sorrow. Just You, O Lord, illumining the city, the new Jerusalem, with the Lamb, we can dwell there for eternity. Pray You'd help us in these matters to believe and to trust You until our final day. We love you and trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.